well, throughout the country today, you go to church to church to church and you'll see, you know, these God and country type services like we're having this morning all, all over the place. And as well, we should celebrate, shouldn't we? The great nation of the United States that we live in and the, the special freedom that we enjoy here. Man, a freedom to live, right? A, a freedom just to live and to, and to pursue. Yeah, we can praise God for that. Grateful that we have that. Uh, we we want to celebrate that. You know, and I would imagine as you went from church to church and, and state to state throughout the country this morning, you'll find these services kind of take on some different feelings, some, some different personalities. I would imagine a lot of them will uh, probably to a detriment be little more than just kind of a warm moment of red, white, and blue. Uh, some of these services will take on probably a, a little bit of preaching about you know, the, the, the biblical and Christian foundations that this country was founded on. Or, or maybe you'll come up with a pastor who will kind of use a, a morning like this to kind of rail against the sins of America, which do seem to be kind of piling up. You know, they'll, they'll take on all of these different feelings. And I, and I guess the, the, the direct question this morning is, which direction is your pastor going? Is he going with more of the sentimentality? Well, we've already had a good bit of that, haven't we? We've got the red, white, and blue. We've celebrated our, our soldiers and, and what they've done to secure our freedom. Or, or maybe will I be going more toward the, you know, the preaching the hellfire. And man, let's just get after America this morning. You know, I, I tell you what, I, I don't know. To be honest with you, I, I think I could go either direction. I, I'm very conflicted this morning. I, I love America. I think we enjoy an incredible nation. I would imagine like some of you, I've had the blessing of being able to travel a good bit. I've been on three continents. I've been on over 20 nations. And there is nothing like the United States of America. I mean, you know, when it comes down to it, isn't the proof kind of in the pudding? I mean, there's people from every country on the planet trying to get into the United States. How many Americans are fleeing? Even the ones who hate this country, how many of them are leaving it? You know, it, it doesn't happen. There, there's something pretty special. There's something pretty good going on here. And as we can recount the sins of America, you know, folks, I don't mean to go too much that direction because there's a lot good going on. I mean, this is a nation that when God peers over the precipice of heaven and looks at the United States, He can indeed see millions of people who love Him, who fear Him, who acknowledge Him who serve Him, who worship the Lord Jesus Christ. God can see that in the United States. We're a charitable nation. I mean, maybe in a way that's incomparable. I'm not sure what you would point to either today or in history as a second place. I think America, as a matter of fact, I think even a lot of charitable nations today are just poning up to the lead that America's already set. I mean, we give. We give to each other, we give to other nations when there is time of crisis, when there is time of need and devastation. We are a charitable people. We're a, we're a kind people. I mean, even when our army whoops your army, we'll still go back in, give you the keys back and use our resources to rebuild your country and help you enjoy the freedom that you didn't have before. That's, that's unparalleled in human history. Folks, this is a good nation. It's a good nation, not a perfect nation. We've got our wrongs within our borders. We've got our wrongs outside of our borders. True now, it's been true throughout history. But America is a good nation. I do believe that. But, and there's a but, isn't there? 
We're going we're to continue today our study of Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at, at verses 24 to 32. You can go ahead and turn there now if you'd like. Romans chapter 1, verse 24 to 32. You know, I, I don't know that our, our passage today, it's not a study of the United States. It's a, it's a study of humanity. It's a study that's, that's regardless of the nationality or the borders or, or politics or anything like that. It's, it's just a study of humanity. I, I don't know that it is particularly a passage that you would choose if you were doing a July 4th message. It's just the passage that we come to today. But it is a passage that is showing the end result of defying and rebelling against God. And I think, sadly, it is a passage that sounds like we're describing the United States of America. It is a passage that is becoming more and more and more the predominant description of the United States. We are a nation that is in contempt of God. We are a nation that is in rebellion to God. And folks, on that course... Do you realize it's kind of hard to talk about hope for a future? It doesn't really matter what the economy does or what the housing market does or whatever political party's in control. That all becomes amazingly irrelevant if this is the course that we stay on. Now, last week we looked at verses 18 to 23 and we saw that, that uh, humanity has rebelled against the idea of a God of wrath. We, we ignore the idea of consequences. We, we ignore the idea that there are consequences for not living like we have a creator. For acting like we can worship creation and in effect worship ourselves. And today's passage is going to show us the, the natural end to staying on that road. Now our focus today is verses 24 to 32. But, but what I would like to do is I'd like to go ahead and reread going to make it kind of a long read, but I'd like to reread last week's passage because verses 18 to 32 are really one thought. They're, they're kind of one idea that, that goes all together. So while I've broken it up into, into two different messages, I want to read it all now. So let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to be reading from the, the New Living Translation. You know I use that periodically, especially when I'm reading something kind of long, because uh, it, it just reads very well. So it might sound a little different than what you're holding in your lap, but I think if you'll listen closely, you'll, you'll see it's saying the exact same thing. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It says, But God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who push the truth away from themselves. For the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. From the time the world has been, was created, people have seen the earth and sky and all that God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. The result was that their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools instead. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worship idols made to look like mere people or birds and animals and snakes. So God let them go ahead and do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. 
Instead of believing what they knew was the truth about God, they deliberately chose to believe lies. So they worship things God made, but not the Creator Himself, who is to be praised forever. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men and as a result suffered within themselves the penalty they so richly deserved. When they refused to acknowledge God, He abandoned them to their evil minds and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, fighting, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They are forever inventing new ways of sinning and are disobedient to their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, and are heartless and unforgiving. They are fully aware of God's death penalty for those who do these things, yet they go right ahead and do them anyway. And worse yet, they they encourage others to do them too. In our passage today, verse 24 to 32, there is a key phrase. You see it three times. You see it in verse 24. You see it in verse 26. And then you see it again in verse 28. Your translation probably says, God gave them over. Or God delivered them up. Or delivered them over to. Pastor and author Chuck Swindoll, uh, in studying this passage, says this phrase is a picture of tough love. You know, folks, when you love somebody, you're not going to stand passively by and watch sin destroy them and destroy those around them. Love and acceptance does not have the purpose of allowing wrong to continue. We really do get that confused. That, That to be loving and accepting, you just tolerate and put up with everything and give chance after chance after chance. Love and acceptance does that, but not for the purpose of creating an environment where it's safe to continue doing wrong. And so as we chose to rebel against God, as we chose to worship things, creation, and ultimately ourselves, God lets us go. He lets us head off into that. It's a picture of God holding on to us. Gently, lovingly, kindly, He holds on to us. But we are kicking, clawing, screaming, doing everything we can to get away, and finally He lets go. He lets go to let us run headlong into our rebellion. To run headlong into our sin and its consequences. Now when God lets go, that's not a picture of God being frustrated. That's not a a picture of God being angry. That's not a, a, a picture of God not caring. That is a picture of tough love. It is a picture of God saying, I'm going to let you go to this so you realize that what you're clawing after is not what you want. You know what, folks? Sometimes the loving and accepting thing to do is to allow them back in. Sometimes that's the loving thing. To to let them back in, to let them have a hot shower, a warm meal, to let them receive acceptance again. Sometimes to let them come in and have another chance. But sometimes when we do that, we cross a line somewhere and all of a sudden our love and acceptance begins to protect them in their wrong. It begins to empower them and enable them in their wrong. God knows that line. 
And so there are times when God, in His love, not anger, not frustration, not throwing His hands in the air, doesn't know what else to do, God will let us go because sometimes the most loving thing He can do is let us lay in the gutter of our choices. Sometimes that's the most loving thing. And so this passage, verses 18 to 23, has got humanity saying, I don't want a God, I don't want a Creator, I don't care about consequences, I'm going to worship what I want, I'm going to worship ultimately myself, I decide how I'm going to live. And now, verses 24 to 32, as we continue to demand that in God's face, as we continue to shake our fist in God's face, then it says, then God says, I deliver you over to. Then I will let you go into that which you are crying for. And in verse 24, it says, God gave them over to impurity. Now, the word for impurity there might best be understood contamination. And all three of these delivering overs are ultimately about the breakdown of the purpose. What we were created for. And and, and so God said, I'm giving you over then to the contamination that you want. The the idea, folks, like say take a surgeon's knife. You know, a surgeon's knife has a very specific purpose, doesn't it? It won't be used tomorrow at the cookout. It's not for spreading mayonnaise. It's not for cutting meat or cheese. It's not for carving wood. No, a surgeon's knife is a very specific purpose. But if that knife drops, if it's carried outside of the surgical room, it becomes contaminated and it can't be used anymore. Because of contamination, it literally instantly, it becomes worthless. Folks, this idea here is as you and I demand that we worship elements of creation and ultimately ourselves, we become contaminated. We're no longer good for the purpose for which we were created. We were created to worship and enjoy God. But as we worship things, as we worship ourselves, we become contaminated. And that means we're going to walk through life and even in times of happiness... Even in times of success, even in times when kind of big things are coming together, there's always just down deep a little bit of sense of emptiness. A little bit of sense of frustration. It's always that feeling that, man, I thought this would ultimately get me there, but it only lasts for a moment and now it takes a little bit more, a little bit more. We can't live in light of what we were designed And it's not just that we get contaminated, but we contaminate everything. Nothing is going to work like it's supposed to work. Folks, God has given us so many good things. God gave us marriage. God's the one who designed that, who who, who put it together. God gave us sex. That was His idea. He designed it. He put it together. God gave us food. I mean, how incredible is this? He gave us like four sets of different taste buds. I can't name them. What, sweet and bitter and a couple others. Why? Just to enjoy food. No other reason. I mean, you don't need to enjoy what you're eating to get nutrients, to get fuel. No, God just created pleasure. He created enjoyment and food for us to enjoy. Folks, God's created all kinds of things in the created world. But when we take those things and we use them outside of His design, when we take those things and we begin to worship them, we contaminate them. We contaminate those things. We contaminate ourselves when we become idolatrous. I would imagine in our world today, in America, we're going to say, well, no, I've never never been idolatrous. I've never bowed down and worshipped a carved image. I I would doubt many of us have bowed down and actually worship a physical carved image. But but folks, we're idolatrous. We we do bow down and we do worship at the altar of false gods. When you're doing that, you're looking to something. You're saying, this is where worth is. 
This is where life is. This is where happiness is. This is what will cover up the hurt. This is what will give meaning. And folks, we bow down to the altar of sex and drugs and alcohol. We bow down to the altar of work and achievement and and accomplishment. We bow down at the altar of athletics. We bow down at the altar of buying and shopping. There's all kinds of things we bow down to and say, cover up the pain. All kinds of things we bow down to and say, give my life meaning and purpose and a sense of happiness just for a moment. And we've messed everything up. We've contaminated everything. And so then it continues the progression. We'd move on. You'd think at this point, you know, we're kind of laying in the gutter. You'd think at this point, we'd look up and say, man, there's got to be something better. Man, there's got to be a better way. Maybe, Maybe I shouldn't be worshiping the stuff and I should look to the one who created it all. But no, we continue declining. And so then God continues to let us go. In verse 26, it says that he he gives us over to degrading passions. Now, it's not just that that we are are contaminating the things that God uses, has given us. But now we're we're degrading those things. We're degrading ourselves. We're acting subhuman. We're acting so far below what God created us to, to be and to experience. Now, folks, in this passage I read this morning, there's over 20 different sins mentioned. Now, Paul lifts one set of sins out, doesn't he? Sexual immorality and homosexuality. All the sins are equally destructive. Please hear that. He pulls out one as an illustration primarily because it's where he's living. It's the culture he's in. Paul, you remember, we've talked about this several weeks ago when we did an introduction to Rome, and this is why all that introductory material is important. Remember, where's Paul while he's writing this letter? He's in Corinth. Corinth, maybe the biggest attraction of that city, was the the temple Aphrodite. Uh, She was the goddess of love and beauty and sexual pleasure. And as a result of coming to that false temple and that that false god, Corinth became an incredibly sexually perverted, sexually immoral city. So as Paul's living in this city, and he he was there for a couple of years, there for a long time in the midst of all this sexual immorality, it's just in his face all the time. But not only is that where he's living, but he is riding a city, Rome, that is very much the same. It's like Paul is in New York City and he's writing San Francisco. You got the picture? You got what we're talking about? He's in, he is in a very immoral place. He's writing a very immoral place. It's all around him. As a matter of fact, there was a term that day called to Corinthianize. You know, guys, if you say, man, we're going to go out on the town tonight and we're going to Corinthianize. I think you can put the math together and know what that meant. You know, we're going to go out and I'll just say party. You can do the math. I mean, this is the kind of immorality that he's dealing with. So it'd be very natural for him in a list of sins, not one sin, but in a list of the sins that are symbolic of defying God, in a list of sins that will destroy a community, a people, a nation, Paul lifts out one as an illustration of those degrading passions. Uh, 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 he lifts out one sin that is symbolic of man as we move further and further away from God. And then finally, we end up in a depraved mind. Man, when we take on a depraved mind, verse 28, when when he delivers us over to that, folks, we begin to think so worthlessly, so foolishly about everything. We mess up now everything. It's not just that we struggle with putting life together. We actually destroy every good thing that God has given us so that our lives become filled with hurt with disease, with pain, with a lack of hope. 
So this is the progression that, that Paul is talking about as we move away from God, as we rebel against a Creator. Now the passage again covers a number of sins. It pulls out one and it talks about it a good bit. So I will do the same this morning. And obviously you see that sin there and that culture that Paul was living. He's dealing with homosexuality. It's a, it's a sin in this country that if you're over the age of what? 30? You've really seen a radical change in our country, haven't we? In the last five to ten years towards this particular sin. Even, yay, this past week. The Scripture speaks very clearly to homosexuality. It's interesting to, to read what I will call homosexual-friendly Bible interpreters. I'm not sure you can put those two terms together, but... Those who are for homosexuality and they try to deal with biblical passages like this one, they, they would look at it and say, well, you, you really can't take Paul's word here because Paul's a homophobe. Now, I'm not sure how they would know that. It's irrelevant. Maybe he was. But guess what? I'm not a follower of Paul. Guess what? The goal of my life is not to understand the teachings of Paul. I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is the Word of God, not Paul, that is against homosexuality. Now, Paul wrote these words as God authored them through him. You know, when God uses writers, their personality, their experiences, their life, their way of writing is all very clear in the Scripture. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit protects that the word that lands there, the idea that lands there, is God's word and God's idea. I've heard some look at this, and this is, I think, my favorite one, is that, is that when God wrote this, God doesn't have any problem with homosexuality but that rather Paul was addressing a particular problem inside of homosexuality. There was something in, in Rome there inside a very good homosexual relationship that was happening that was perverted. Now, how anybody would read that and see that, I have not a clue. I mean, you really, I think it probably helps to be smoking at that time, something else. I mean, that, that's just mind-boggling how you would come to that. I mean, folks, the reality is that Scripture speaks a number of times to homosexuality. It speaks to it in the Old Testament. It speaks to it in the New Testament. And not one time, not a single time, does it speak positively. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even speak neutrally on the issue of homosexuality. It is always negative. And they say, well, Paul didn't have the freedom to really say anything positive about it because at that day and time, like has been true for much of the history of America, culture was against homosexuality. So, you know, he was going with the flow. He was going with culture. They would say that. The only problem is it's not true. He's living in Corinth. A very homosexual society. He is writing to Rome where it was expected of Roman governing officials to be in pedophile relationships. Incredible immorality. There's no reason Paul was going with the flow. There's no constant. There, folks, the Bible covers a 1,500-year time span, and it covers spans in which homosexuality was very accepted. It's written in cultures where it was very accepted. So the idea that Paul just had to go with the flow, or other Bible writers had to go with the flow and denounce it, it's not true. They're speaking against it because it's wrong. So the Scripture says this, but then culture comes to us and, and they come with arguments that obviously deny biblical authority and we have to recognize they're, they're not going to use the Bible as a reason to not do this. And so they want us to explain certain things like, well, if, if it's wrong, how can God be against it when people are born that way? 
Well, the only problem is there's no science that says that people are born that way. The most significant science that was ever done was about 10 or 12 years ago uh, that really looked to conclusively prove that people could be born that way. After a couple of years, the science was shown to have a lot of holes in it. And gosh, who knew the two scientists that did this report were homosexual? You know, who saw that coming? Maybe a little biased. Now, folks, I'll be honest with you. I might be a little prejudiced in that any kind of science that comes, that's kind of where they're going today, isn't it? Science wants to prove this is okay. So they're going to look at the data for that purpose. That's not science. That's not how science works. But, but let's just say for a moment that conclusive science is out there or it's on the way and, and they are going to conclusively prove that you can be born a homosexual. Does that, is that the trump card? Are we done, man? What do we do now? Gosh, I mean, you know, surely God wouldn't let somebody be born that way and then say it's wrong. Folks, utterly irrelevant if we're born that way. Didn't the Bible already run out ahead of science and say that? Yeah, we're born sinners. It doesn't take long for that little baby to start moving its lips and forming words before he or she will lie. They're born little liars. So can I just look up and say, God, you can't hold me guilty of lying. I was born that way. No, what does God say? Folks, that's what all of God's Word is about. It's taking our natural tendencies and inclinations and saying, here's where those are destructive. Bring that under control and live inside these lines. I mean, folks, I don't mean to be crass. I'm born heterosexual. That means I'm born with a propensity to enjoy a woman without her clothes on. It means I'm born with propensity to have sex with lots of women. Does that mean I can just say, well, that's the way I'm born? No, God says no to that across the board. No, you cannot lust. No, you cannot have sex with whoever you want. As a matter of fact, just with one and inside of marriage. Being born some way doesn't mean a thing. I mean, is this rocket science? I mean, of course we're born that way. And the scripture says, out of kindness and love, don't let your natural tendencies run wild with you. You'll live like an animal. I didn't create you to be an animal. I created you to be in the image of me, of God. Now, obviously, we go ranting and raving like this. And people look at us and folks, this is what your kids are dealing with at school. And by the way, you realize we are moving toward becoming a fully engaged homosexual society. We're just waiting until the 55 and up crowd finally moves on and dies. Because everybody coming up, it's, it's amazing. Overwhelming the support for homosexuality in the, in the 35 and down. And you know what? Very simple, very, very simple debate. How can you be against somebody finding love? I mean, what, what's wrong with you? I mean, are you just in a terminally bad mood? I mean, what, what's all up in your crawl that you've got to go home today and, and you've got to be against two people finding love? How's that hurting you? How's that hurting society? How's that uh, affecting your home? I mean, it, it, and you know what? A lot of people, a lot of Christians, and not just our kids, a lot of adults in the workplace are going, uh, 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 uh. I mean, that's kind of the trump card, isn't it? I mean, what kind of hateful, mean person do you have to be to be against somebody finding love? Folks, I'm not against anybody finding love. There's actually a lot of good sociological evidence that suggests the devastation that homosexuality brings to both an individual and to a society that moves that direction. But folks, whether we've got a good list or not, whether we got a good debate or not, the bottom line is God said no. 
God's love and he's defined what love is and he has said homosexual love is not that love. And I'm not being loving, I'm not being tolerant, and I'm not being kind to tell somebody any different. It might not feel good to hear that. Sometimes I don't like, it doesn't feel good to have you tell me I can't lie. That's my nature, that's what I want to do. But the loving thing is to say, no, you shouldn't lie. No, that's not how you want to pursue and find love. Because God said no. Now folks, let's be honest, we kind of like it when the preacher preaches on gays. Give it to them, pastor! Both barrels! Man, yeah, America's going to hell in a handbasket. We need to get them gays. I mean, you know, folks, let's be honest. We like any sin that's being preached on that's not my sin. Any sin. I mean, go hard, go long, go fast, go strong, go deep. Give it to them. I mean, we do. And that's why it gets really exciting. I mean, generally speaking, as a whole, the church tends not to be filled with homosexuals. So, you know, that's a sermon. That's a message. Boy, pastor, you just go nuts, go crazy, turn red, sweat, do all that. Folks, you know, whatever you find horribly wrong about homosexuality, into that camp you need to put these people, people who gossip. Remember, there's... Over 20 sins listed here that are signs of people who are rebelling and rejecting against God. There's over 20 sins here that are destructive to a people and to a nation. Yes, he pulls one out, talks about it for four or five verses, uses that as an illustration. But he's not pulling it out as this is the end all be all of all sins. These are the people I hate. But now these other sins are just, you know, they're okay. They're mildly bad, not so bad. No, whatever camp you want to put those horrible homosexuals, go ahead and put people who gossip. Go ahead and put people who, who struggle with forgiving. Isn't, it, isn't that listed? They're unforgiving. Go ahead and put people over there who are disobedient to their parents. Folks, is homosexuality a horrible, destructive sin in the United States of America? Yes, it is. Do you know why? Because all sin is horrible and destructive to the United States of America and every other nation on the planet. All of it. Folks, I don't know how many people in America are gay. Maybe 10%. But I'll bet 90% of America or more struggles with forgiving people. I bet 90% or more of America struggles with gossip. I bet 90% of America struggles with envy and greed. My gosh, America's built on envy and greed. That's why we go to work every day. I want more. I want your stuff. These things are every bit as destructive. They're every bit as much a sign of a people's rebellion against God as is homosexuality. What do we need to do for our culture today? What do we need to do for ourselves today? I think, number one, folks, we need to pray that God would make our hearts sensitive to sin again because we're not sensitive to sin. We're very hard to it. I'm talking about the church. Uh, the rest of them, they're not in here, so I can't talk to them. The church, we're hardened to sin. God, make us sensitive to sin again. Make us sensitive to conviction again. And when I feel that conviction, may I not justify it and look for science that says it's okay, but may I actually respond with repentance. Number two, God, would you incline our hearts again to you and your ways? 
Folks, you've got to pray for both things. Incline my heart to Jesus and incline my heart to Jesus' way. Because in the United States of America, in the church, we've created this thing where you can love Jesus, but you don't have to give a rip snort about His ways. We can come in here and we can sing to Jesus and talk about how we love Jesus and, and I'm a Jesus follower and then I go out here Monday through Saturday and I hate and I'm envious and I'm lustful and I'm greedy. I'm doing all of these things that are every bit as much a rebellion of God as the God-hater out there. Folks, it's Jesus and His ways. They go together. They go hand in hand. Third thing we need to do, folks, instead of maybe being focused and folks, let me tell you something. We need to be very concerned about what happened in New York. We need to be very concerned and very involved in what's going on in our nation as regarding homosexual laws. But folks, maybe just for a moment, we need to, instead of being focused on somebody else's sin, we need to be focused on letting godliness and righteousness begin in this house. Instead of being focused on a small proportion of homosexuals, we need to be focused on the greed that's inside our church. We need to be focused on the unforgiveness that is inside our church. We need to be focused on the gossip that is inside our church. Let a return to God begin in here before we expect it to begin out there. I'll go back to number two. It's Jesus and His ways. Folks, it's not just clapping because it's good Jesus talk. It's going out there and trying to live the hard life of Christ. It's going out there and saying, boy, these darn gays, what are they doing to America? Your lies this week are destroying America every bit as much. God, let the change begin in my life. Let the change about sin begin in my home. Let a new flavor and air of godliness and righteousness begin not at just the liberal church in America. Let it begin at Colonial Heights Baptist. Amen. Father, I come before you this morning and I ask for your help. God, to point out in my life how desensitized I've become to a sexually immoral society. How desensitized I've become to offensive language. God, how desensitized I've become to ungodliness all around me. God, I pray that you would awaken all of our hearts to this. God, help us to realize when it's going on all around us, we, sooner or later, we become very desensitized to the sin that's in our own life. There's ungodliness and immorality walking right through the church. God, we're not, we're not reading a passage that's to be describing the church. We're, we're reading a passage about people who have rejected Christ, about people who are God-haters, people who, who want nothing to do with you. And yet, Lord, I look at this passage and these sins are not only dominant in our culture, these sins are dominant in the church. God, would you forgive us? When we wake up tomorrow morning, may the first words off our lip be, I love Jesus. And because of that love, may we open your word and understand all that you want us to know about you and how we're to live in Corinth. How we're to live in Rome. I want to live like a follower of Christ. I don't want our... I don't want our ministry, I don't want my ministry to be one of hate and name calling and bashing people and their sins. I want my ministry to be one of light 
I want my ministry to be one of the gospel. God, when you're delivering them over, leads them face down into that gutter, when they look up, I want them to see the godliness, the light, the salt of the church. And say, that's got to be the way. Lord, I know for that to happen, there's got to be a difference between us and them. Let it be so. Whatever change we think needs to happen in this nation, let it begin in our lives, in our home. Let it begin in our church. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.